So right now in front of me, I have open my feedback that I got for my capstone project in 2018, um, which I did a year earlier than I could have done my final year capstone project. And this is the feedback that I got for it. In particular, this is the reason why I want this episode today to be on this. Um, It says, It ought to go without saying that this was an extraordinary collection of poems. Of course they are. However, and there's a part of you that, well, might be disappointed by what I'm about to say, but it ought not to be. Extraordinary as they are, the true value of this collection is not the final product, but the process. And not just the process of writing them, but the process which is yet to come, of reading them with fresh eyes. I do wonder what you'll make of them in a year or two. Fast forward to a couple years. Um, It's been, I think, gosh, what? That's unreal. It's like four years. Yeah, so in a year or two or three or four years, we are now here and I'm going to be reading these poems that I wrote with fresh eyes, but also welcome to our poetry evening slash poetry afternoon, whatever time it is over there. I think this episode might be best consumed when it's a little bit dark or dim or Maybe that's just the environment I feel like this poetry collection is best read in. I don't know. But I'm going to be trying to do a poetry reading. I'm so nervous, but I'm also excited. I haven't really read these poems in a while. So you and I are both going to have things that surprise us. Let me know if this is not a sole experience that I have. Okay, here goes. So I have this thing where I will create something, whether it's a story, whether it's a drawing, whether it's poetry, which I actually haven't done so in a while now. It makes me feel like a fraud. But on that note, I am the type of person who creates stuff. Okay, whatever it is. And later on whether it is a day later a week later a month couple months i look back on it and i feel so alienated from my own piece of work but you know when you create something that actually is pretty good in your own eyes or you feel like this is actually not bad right i kind of struggle with thinking oh i can do this again or oh this is something that i've created which means i can do it again Like, I don't think like that. I think, oh, a past version of myself created this and she was really in the zone and I've lost my zone forever. I'm not getting it back. I can't create anything like this anymore. That's that's a time capsule that's gone. I don't know. I I always feel like it's it's like a ghost that haunts you a little bit because you've created it and it's just there in the past and it's always going to be stuck in the past. Am I just I feel like I might be just overthinking this but yeah i wanted to dig up my poetry book slash poetry anthology something i remember about poetry that i learned in undergrad or something that i thought about because 
it was mentioned by a prof is the fact that poems will always sound different from what they look like on the page. So it's different to read a poem visually than it is to say it out loud, hear how it sounds, pause when you need to pause, have tone. Um, there's a kind of internalized quality to poetry sometimes when we just read it off the page and it can transform when you read it out loud. And now I've never read my work before out loud. I've never had a chance to just read what I write out loud. In fact, I don't really do it because it's it feels weird to me because I'm I'm hearing my own internal thoughts and I don't know if I like it or not. But um yeah, I these are not spoken word poems at all. They are definitely poems that were intended to be read off a page. So um, I thought it'd be interesting to go through them and read them again and see what my reactions are, but also what I can recall from what these poems are trying to unpack. I just wanted to start off this episode with just a couple of things my prof mentioned. And I feel really encouraged by the fact that poetry or creative works are meant to be revisited, kind of like an old friend. Um, the process is always long, grueling, doesn't end just because it ends. And I feel like I'm dusting this poetry anthology off the shelves. If there's anything I've learned is that um, in my supervisor's wise words, art is an artifact of what you could make at the time. And this version of me who was writing this was definitely someone who was thinking about um, certain themes and topics and experiences a lot. Overall, this, it was so cathartic to write. Anyway, welcome to Poetry Night. Um, this might be a little bit longer. I hope you are ready to stay a bit late. Um, if you are, that's great, but also digest this as you may. Have a break in between if you need a break. The full PDF version of the poetry chapter book is also now available on Payhip. So if you want to support this poetry project, make sure you check the link in the description of this episode and also on the Instagram wholeheartedly.pod. I've sprinkled a little bit of art in some of the poems, so hopefully they're a nice surprise if you do choose to purchase it. Um, I'd really appreciate it if you wanted to support it. I'd be so grateful. So let's get into what this poetry collection is. What is it? You're going to meet her for the first time. Okay, so here goes. Let's meet her. Essentially, what Burns is, is a poetry collection slash anthology about anger and the different ways that language captures, manipulates, reshapes, um, and ignites anger. There are three chapters or three parts. How this came about was I think I wanted to do my final year project on something that would be different and challenging and creative. I wanted to take an experimental route of what can I do that's maybe creative, but still, um, you know, has a purpose or a theme or a concept that I could somehow tie it together with because I don't want to just make poetry and not have any kind of um, focus, you know. So 
yeah, I remember telling my supervisor, hey, the three different topics that I had to send over the summer break for my capstone, um, just ignore that. Yeah, I don't really like those topics anyways. By the way, I have realized that when I write poetry, my speaker tends to sound a little bit spiteful slash angry. Not sure if we can pick that apart, but you know. That was definitely not the exact wording of how that email went. Um, I did manage to kind of have a discussion with my prof supervisor and we came to the conclusion that this was going to be a project that is different and marking it obviously was going to be different as well. All you have to know is that Burns essentially is tethered by an image slash landscape. Like think of it as a painting. Um, I think my best way to describe what I wanted Burns to be was a exploration of how language can shape, reshape, um, and narrate anger, which is an emotion that I remember learning or discussing during lectures or tutorials, and we would always talk about how anger is a shield or a blanket for something that is a little bit more raw or vulnerable. So I wanted to explore just the body of anger, if it has a body. Burns has three chapters or three parts and is based off of a landscape that unfolds in those three parts, which is a figurative representation of anger. There's the fuel, the flames, and the ashes. I know, very dramatically named, definitely wanted structure. And the image I wanted the anthology to be based on is just the image of a burning house, of a home set on fire. Um, every chapter begins with a descriptive scene of this image, and then it goes into the poem. So that's, I think, the context that I wanted to provide. If the entire anthology is a burning house, um, which is what I was picturing, the fuel explores what caused the fire. So what started it? Um, what started anger, what fueled it, what ignited it. Um, and these might actually be things that, you know, not everyone will see. They're really internalized feelings, really internalized emotions. There's a lot of grief in this one. And I think at the end of the anthology, what it's really all about is grief and the different ways that in my eyes at least, from my writer perspective, I try to use anger to mask grief. Sometimes it fails, sometimes it's, you know, it's there. Um, but the feel really tried to explore that. And I would say that a lot of the poems that I really, really, really like um, might've come from the fuel because it was coming from such a vulnerable state of mind and it was coming from just a vulnerable place. I had a really hard time writing these poems. I remember crying through at least half of them um, because there's really no way to write them without fully investing myself emotionally. And it's kind of like all of these really difficult experiences and emotions and feelings suddenly had a body because once you name something, once you talk about something and you give language to something, it houses a body. So I think that was the really exhausting and tiring part of this it's just confronting like all of that and also reshaping that into something you can see and read over and over so that was the fuel 
and there are a lot of poems from the fuel that I really enjoyed, really liked. Um, the flames is the core of this kind of angry image. It is externalized. What you see um, is what you get kind of anger. It's the anger that you project out into the world. It's the anger that is strong and makes you look strong and makes you look fearful almost. And then last we have the ashes, which is more about, you know, what comes after the anger? How do we rebuild ourselves? How do we get up? How do we focus on what's left? What's left after the house is burning? Um, you know, what are the remains? What can we say? What can we keep? Forms of healing are, are in that specific chapter. So on that note, welcome to the world of Burns 2018 Revisited The Fuel Setting From a distance, midnight Enter Wargirl Home is on fire Wargirl observes its ember jacket Orange swallows midnight She overhears the fire department What caused a fire? They say Folding up each hand, she exhales a warm breath. Out into the ice-ridden air, she steps. Before each poem, I'm going to give it just a small preface, so we kind of know what's coming. So Tattoo Artist, which is the first poem that starts off Burns and is the first match in this entire house fire is a poem that I finished and as soon as I finished I knew for certain that I wanted this to be the first poem because I felt like it captured what the entire anthology is is based off and I mean I didn't write this poem first but once I did finish it I immediately put it at the top of the list because I feel like it sets the scene and there's a line at the end, I think the last line, um, I felt like ending that first poem and beginning the other poems with that line was an accurate mapping of what this entire anthology is going to be because at the end of the day, um, everything that I write in this anthology was about grief. It's not always loud. Here's Tattoo Artist. My first tattoo was done by death. Instead of giving me art, he took from me my mother, burned her into the skies on Christmas Eve and left me with his autograph. Tell me, dear, which design would you like? I only do ones with a grave. He paints the tattoo like pen to paper, ink to skin, machine invading a bone home. He begins the tattoo for my chin and I don't look, the chin I fell on when I was seven, when emerald floors should have never met rain. The chin my mother covered with her palm and told me, bandages never lie. Be careful next time. I knew kisses weren't magic, but I believed her. His canvas crawls to my spine, my vertebrae that once pressed on the wall beside Ma's room at 4 a.m. because I swore a ghost slept beside me for too many nights. The tattoo hugs my body the same way my mother's body hugs mine. This is what it means to tattoo a daughter. 
He brings the ink towards my throat, circles a pattern over and over the size of a butterfly wing. It hurts three years later on a day my father watched me inquire. Silk rivered from my lungs and I became ashamed that my mother was a ghost. My first tattoo was done by death. I've hidden it for 13 years. When I turned 20, he ended the canvas just below my left rib. How does it look? I ask a friend. It looks like grief. The funny thing about this form of grief that tattoo artist kind of captures is it's a very subtle, it's a very delicate form of grief. I was trying to think of the permanence of grief, of when you lose someone, you really realize this is a forever thing. There are no costume changes. There's no, um, you know, like, okay, I can just take off my coat of grief and just hang it in the corner. And as long as I don't look at it, it's fine. It's a poem that just tries to say, you know, once you've acknowledged that grief is going to be a part of your life, you're going to be wearing it always. Um, it's going to be permanent. It's going to be not just something you can just take off. And everyone does this, right? Like you go about your daily life. Everyone does. You do mundane, ordinary routines. Let's say you're commuting. Let's say you're taking a walk. You're ordering food at a restaurant. And whilst you're doing this, 90% of the time, you know, maybe you're actually carrying a really heavy emotion with you. And it just so happens that at this point in time when this was written, I was carrying around grief everywhere. And, you know, some days I still do, right? And there are flickers where it's louder, where it's quieter. And yet everyone's doing what they need to do, which is kind of amazing, you know? People are still at the grocery store finding their usual ingredients or they're paying. They are walking as if they are fine and everything is going to be okay. They're walking as if they don't care about certain issues or problems or anything. Like you would never know. Um, something about that is just, it's both reassuring, but also just like we instinctively mask are more negative emotions. Um, I used to be so ashamed of the fact that I had something to grieve, um, which is what I think the final two stanzas of this poem are. And I'm asking someone, you know, hey, what does this thing that I'm wearing look like? I really like how the last line sounds really just matter of fact, you know, it looks like grief and that's what it is. Like it's not anything dramatic or performative it's just grief and i really like that oh my gosh i didn't even notice that the first time i was writing it um but the fact that it ends so simple is something i i didn't even acknowledge and i really appreciate how it sounds now so that was tattoo artist <laughs> i'm probably not gonna ramble on um for that long for most of these poems i thought it was needed to ramble about the first one so we're gonna move on to the next two poems i'm gonna be reading are called war cry and ghost mother war cry girl stores war cries instead of music she can declare top grossing hits without looking at charts track number five silence 
When father's footsteps announced that death had taken mother away, death held her hand and gave her flowers. He introduced himself as the conductor of life. Welcome to my stage. Your father, too, will hold my hands after two decades. An encore, my gift to you. He turned her home into a minefield that day. Track number four. Metal played their orchestra the day her skin met forks farther through like javelins. Prongs kissed a crescendo on her ankle. The note on her skin bleeds. That day, girl pretended blood was raspberry lemonade. Five dollars a cup. She earns hundreds by the age of 16, identifies herself as Pompeii. She awaits. Track number three. Sirens. The glowing kind. The lighthouse on an ambulance invading my home. If the pomegranate seed Persephone swallowed could scream, straddling life and death she eats, strangles the fruit in her fist before biting it again. Several rotations over, lighthouse closing in, a heartache stuck on loop, her wound every carousel's lullaby. No one is safe, no one is home. Track number four. The last voice message she left was a breath. She hoped the heavens still had phone lines and dials a dead number months after. The number you have dialed is incorrect. Please check the number and try again. For a year, she speaks to static while eating pineapples and hangs up on Mother's Day. Track number one. War girl, war girl, it's time to cry, girl. They will blink at crashing tsunamis. Your shark smile will echo the tides. They will never hear anything quite like you. Dear girl, this is what you sound like, the cry before war. Ghost Mother. The drumming house behind my ribcage gates is haunted. My mother visits, a ghost singing you have forgotten me, but my blood oceans have tried sending tides to kiss shores anti-clockwise again and again. Still, I cannot remember her, and dad lives without forgetting. Ghost mother is made up of memory stones. I cry to piece her with adhesive liquid grief. She haunts her daughter by not haunting her, and in this ribcaged house, rust hugs bone, and porcelain sits, too clean, ridden, of homemade fried rice and soup stains. Mother says, The conversations we exchange in your head are stirred with false dialogues you mix together like softened used-to-be honey stars in your cereal. Small treasure, to love a ghost is to keep looking for its shadow, but forget its shadow is where you step. Ghost mother, ghost mother, your daughter too lives as a ghost of you. Ghost mother is definitely stronger in translating the idea of how are you meant to grieve someone or something that you weren't kind of old enough to really know and piece together as a person. Um, ghost mother really tried to, I think, explore the idea of our bodies and us in general being heirlooms. I think Orkar captures the role of sound and conflict and just seeing things on the horizon. Half heart rot. Wargirl's heart is an acidic fraud. Slicing down the middle, she saves one half for later, hidden in a refrigerator of expiration dates. Mansion of decays. Everything has a shelf life, but not everything has a shelf. Instead of numbers, her expiration date cries, Hoff, heart, rot. Date, 
month, year. She wakes up to rust and decay for 20 years. Vascular core weighs like a grapefruit, pomelo, an ice cube. It fluctuates. How much sediment she housed and never spit back out. Sand grains in her mouth, spoons, fist-filled pulp into medicine. War knows no one will love a rotting girl. What do you keep in your chest, dear? What aren't you showing us? This is all she has. Half, heart, rot. Who would want that? With a poem like Half Heart Rot, um, something that's really crucial is that instead of spaces in between the words, there are hyphens. So it's kind of like how you would read a date stamp or an expiration date on a perishable item. So it's kind of like date, month, year, half heart rot. Um, and I was thinking about how self-worth always has some sort of shelf life in my head. I feel like I always give just my own concept of my own self-worth an expiration date or, um, you know, I have to preserve it. I have to make sure I refrigerate my kind of deeds that prove I am worthy of something or um, worth something. This was definitely a poem written when I was in university. So I've definitely grown in some areas in regards to self-worth. Um, some areas I'm still growing in, right? It's always a work in progress. I was really trying to think about how we see ourselves as perishables in terms of we do something that's praised or something that's good and immediately we think oh my gosh we have to maintain that I have to maintain that I need to keep doing things that prove that I am you know really good as a person I don't know I'm, I'm really happy with Half Heart Rod I think it's it's so much fun um for a poem that is about something really sad um, so, you know, like you refrigerate something, you try and keep something for as long as it can possibly last. The poisoning. She commits a hate crime the morning she turns 15. What's left at the scene? A mirror. On a day the skies rained red seas, I left a corpse in the gutter named Self. The day my library books were overdue, I gave myself a bruise the size of my fist under my collarbone and called it food poisoning. Stayed at home for two weeks. Doctor's note signed from yours truly. I meant to replace food with body, but no one needed to know. I chewed my heart out and wrapped it with Sunday news next to my grandma's tangerine peels. She has a drought for a granddaughter, a body of limestone, soft rock home. I wish people could see the crime tape before sending me through chasms. I hide the body under lullaby lies, let crows scavenge before sunrise, but could not wash her off of me. Hand soap, body soap, lung soap, heart soap, all that scar tissue can't mend soap. For 1500 midnights, the corpse climbs 10 feet back up. Dirt in her teeth, blood on her lip. Looks at her debris, then me. This is all you have. She beckons. Why can't you love me? I think the poisoning is more of the perishable side of that self-worth. It's already kind of perished. And the person responsible for, you know, the downfall of that self-worth is no one but myself. 
Sculptures. Every time I see the word mother, someone carves a heartache from me. Skin becomes lino cut. Frame the bruise in a museum, the shape of a bee sting. It's like this. My mother is not a person. I wouldn't know mother if she arrived, claiming I once made a home below her ribs. Mother would look at me. I would see no limbs to wrap my heart with. Because truth is, there are too many. My mother borrows her limbs from sisterhood. A microwaved box of butternut soup, the way rainstorms blanket me home. Limbs for my father. All for my father. What of mothers? Two palms can only do so much. Mother. What do I know? I only know of daughter, the heartaches of that name. Press my skin to paper, make a print. I won't dry into anything. Sculptures is a poem that I think tries to rebuild things, rebuilding and having your own definition of something you don't have is what the heart of sculptures is. It's kind of like you try and make something from scratch that you feel like you didn't have. Um, and I'm quite proud of how this one turned out. I think, you know, it, it pays homage to to the things that kind of brought me up. So the next poem is called Museum of the Dying. I think I had this experience where a lot of fiction and a lot of entertainment likes to dramatize the performative aspect of a form of grief or loss because you know it makes sense right you're trying to create a form of media that's for an audience for a reaction or to kind of strike a chord in the audience so they really focus on the performative aspect of things like grief and death and loss um and i think museum of the dying was kind of like me thinking the kind of loss that I've experienced and uh, that I'm writing about here, I was trying to just kind of ironically present as, you know, a museum exhibit um, because that's what media kind of likes to do. Um, it's not always a bad thing, but I think I just didn't really relate to that. Like there's no performative aspect of it. It's just, it's really simple. It's kind of like the first poem, right? Like, it's like, what is it? That's grief. Also just wasn't worth displaying. Like I didn't feel the need to kind of communicate it or express it or tell people about it. And in some way, shape or form, it almost felt like I was hiding it always. And it became like some secret, even though it didn't start off as a secret. It was just, I just didn't feel like it was a time or place to say like, hey, I went through this loss. So there is a moment of Museum of the Dying where there is a stanza that touches on just the shame of grief, the weird kind of, I'm just gonna hide it under my jacket kind of grief. Um, and yeah, I think there's, there's that aspect of it. I wanted to freeze everything that I experienced into this kind of figurative word museum that I created in this one poem. And so that included my experience at school very briefly. And yeah, I found a lot of cathartic release in this poem and I think it's something that I've always been kind of seeking, which is just to have closure in my own sense, personally. Um, 
So that's what I did. Museum of the Dying. Flower Girl counts graves instead of petals. Killed you, killed you not. Killed you, killed you not. Atlas holds a museum of the dying. Every beating rib has free admission and Girl has been avoiding death's invitation since the last decade. Each ticket costs a vanishing act. Bring a frame to hold cavities. Dress code, a cry. She won't wear oceans this season. Cries have a shelf life. Hers is rotting, browning next to apple cores. Mortality on canvas, painted 2004. Reminder, you don't have to bleed blood to die. Look to your right, a new addition. The day the skies told her father he was overtime. They pinned him to the driver's seat with thumbtacks that weighed like lead, so he bled in the car park. He bled by telling his daughter to go buy the breakfast he promised her. Leave him in the car, half dying, half breathing, kept repeating apologies for dad is not feeling well, when neither of them wanted to be Atlas's special guests, half beaten. To bleed is to not let your daughter starve, but no life is killing you on canvas. Girl bled in school for seven years by wearing graves like secret souvenirs. Knives wrote her love letters and called themselves Megan. Adults broke bones in her sleep, clawed at her ghost mother and called themselves helping you. Museums have never looked this good. Please visit again. Okay, the next two poems are going to be the last poems of the fuel before I just read from the flames and the ashes. Yeah, so the next two poems, Cicada Wing and Feast, are, I want to say, dramatizations of experiences of anxiety, self-doubt, you know, all the things that encompass it. And I was trying to have a little bit of fun is what I remember. Cicada Wing is about how loud anxiety is. It's about how much catastrophizing and snowballing one kind of cry of anxiety in your own head in self-talk can multiply into several different just sounds everywhere. Um, it's just really loud. Cicada Wing. Did you mean anxiety? The first time I held my breath in bathwater, a cicada screeched her life into my right ear. Told me her name was Anxiety, but you can call me Easy. Her wing broke off and paced down to my eardrum, stitched her home there, made sure she was seamless. I carried Easy in my ear for twenty, and no one else could hear her. To them, she was a small stream. To me, heavy metal calamity. My cicada has hurricanes for wings, cacophonies that rip chests, leaving bloodstains. On days you don't know what a bandage is, but you don't have one. You will die. My cicada, anxiety, my best 120 decibel accessory. All on her own, a ballad I never asked to stay, one man play. When I cover my ears, I break to love her. I have to. I have to. I have to, I have to. Anxiety makes her bed in my ear canal and I cover my ears, forgetting this is not how it works. In case you've forgotten, my name is Anxiety. But most people call me easy. The next poem, Feast, is a very drama-heavy poem. I managed to create characters for each of these specific feelings. Um, gave them a voice, gave them habits, mannerisms, behaviors, um, 
yeah, I was trying to, I don't know what I was doing. I think I was just kind of, you know, the fuel had a lot of poems that were really vulnerable and towards writing the end of the fuel, I just felt like slipping in a little bit of the drama and performance that the flames is going to explore and uncover. And so, um, there's just a little bit of a hint of that in these poems. And also I think you might be able to tell I had just, I just decided to have a bit of fun with crafting these images and I didn't really think too hard about it. I was really burnt out from just being so vulnerable for so many poems, but there are so many more in here that I didn't add in and it was just so emotionally draining. I think by the end of it, I just wanted to write with just a little bit of fun. I say fun really lightly. I don't know if I had fun, but I know that I remember not spending as much time writing these poems as I did the previous ones, which is a sign for something. Um, there was like a little shift in mood. Feast. I carry my head like a carcass and let the scavengers feast. I'd like to make a toast. But before that, first at the table is anxiety. Having her as a guest is like someone biting off parts of me like ice cream, use shovels like tablespoons, but don't have teeth. Instead, my body becomes their cavity and they've been digging for millenniums. Her husband, Paranoia, is a picky feaster. He rakes his plated horrors with a fork, forgets how to swallow when everything is acid, acid, acid. I'd like to make a toast, I say again. He complains, dinner is cold, anxious wife refills his plate. This happens 10 times more. He's too busy poking at garnishes that don't matter. Dinner is cold. He continues this over dessert. Someone swore this was a damn buffet and maybe on Saturdays they only serve things he couldn't eat. Insomnia doesn't believe in feasts, but shows up anyways. She shows up everywhere. Who invited you? Who says I need to be invited? She spits. And she's right. They don't say that anymore. Coffee becomes her main course. When she arrives, everything wakes me up. No one can hear over Atlas's cries. His chest weighs seven billion broken hearts. He came to the feast to pretend he has an appetite, when we all know it died long ago. I almost give up announcing, I want to make a toast. Can't you hear me? I want to make a toast. Grief stands up. Life of the party. Her crown ruby red. So make one, she pours another glass of wine. We're all having a grand time. The flame setting the house. Red and marigold tangle with midnight. Nothing puts the fire out. Smoke swallows everything. Girl stands in the middle of the living room. Her eyes find the firefighters through the smoke. She bows. Melting floorboards burn her feet. Ember swallows war girl's eyes. There will be no intermission. This poem is not the first poem of the flames. This one is called You Break It, You Buy It. And I remember writing this and thinking, my speaker is mad and I don't know what she's mad about yet. This one came about from just the idea of consequences 
for things that aren't necessarily all of your responsibility or your fault. That's different from evading responsibility. I think this is more like walking on eggshells and just being sick of walking on eggshells. I think this is what that's about. You break it, you buy it. Then watch me, from the best seat in the house, break everything flesh-eating, bottle earthquakes to drop them, peel the skin of betrayals, lie them out on your grandmother's vintage carpet to dry. It was someone else's grandmother's before. Watch me walk it in no man's land, knowing your skin was brittle before my own. Break bone from bone, home from home, because there's nothing you can do to mine that will evict me. Watch me shatter the eggshells of rotten canaries, crack open an oil spill, pour glue in Poseidon's sea, because, dear darling Poseidon, the ocean was hers before you held a fork. Everything wears and tears, even myth gods like you. We pay for what you break. We've been paying since we were half-human belly aches, so watch me wedge a wound the size of orange slice. I hear acid is a good look for you, but we beat you. We've worn it for eons, hear the battle hum of my chaotic girls, screams sunken under, gift you a hammerhead shark bite. We're not paying for any of that. Maestro. She bows in uniform, act of a maestro, spits out her circus of blood banks. Opening night looks alive, her partner, a burning rage, on standby, stares. Caged tempers don't need practice to play their act. They only listen to their ringmaster. She has to remind you it's her. Maestro girl sings the world sour, pack you up in cartons and pour out your life. What you're watching is your worst nightmare. She wears it well. She's worn it for every show. But tonight is a collector's edition performance. Your heart is up next. Maybe if you kissed Mercy and showed you wanted her, Maestro Girl would spare your life. Don't bother, she howls. You've already paid for horrors. We're prodigies at that. I'm not going to go through a lot of poems from the flames or explain them very deeply mainly because looking back at these poems, they did read as quite shallow. It barely scratches the surface of what I want to capture. It's very externalized. It's an externalized form of anger. It's a performative form of anger. It doesn't really have the core of that anger. It's, it's just, it's all externalized and I can see how it can come off as shallow feel like it's it's interesting to see just a difference between the speakers here and what we heard from the fuel i think to know just the 180 degree change that has happened um you know the before and after the ashes setting whatever is left War girl makes a picnic on debris. Dust corsets her skin. Knuckles purple, palms red. She is the only one left. A raven sings beside corpses of firemen. She pillows a dragonfly to her chest. She walks away. Exit, war girl. Where lies the body? Grief will soon send you a message. 
ask you where does the body lie, corroding itself and staying alive all at once. You'll chase ghosts with stomach acid, carry your skeleton in the air, a bone marrow sandstorm, the body coughs, so do you, so does your father, so did your mother. It is in ruins, it shadows the bodies around it, it is learning to love secrets again, at a payphone somewhere, telling itself, call them back this time, for sure, but never does. It's wearing the names that slit its throat, you turn them into a list, lower it into an earthquake. This body is your family heirloom. You'll pass it down in echoes and lose it. You're looking at the body. It's everywhere. And it's not lying. Let's start with that. I feel like me spending a lot of time expressing and voicing the poems from The Fuel just demonstrates the entire project and its exploration in its entirety, which is when you look beneath anger and you try to uncover it there's so much to unpack you know anger is not an emotion it's something that blankets and encompasses several emotions and when it comes to grief you know that's the root of a certain kind of anger um this is the last and final poem of the night and it's called burial burial what are burials made of? What you're burying, not a body. Some of it is guilt, lots of it, actually, but it's not all yours. What are burials made of, you ask? They're laced with could-have-beens, missed chances, lost loves, it doesn't matter, you're burying everything anyway. You tell yourself that if you bury it fast enough, maybe you'll forget quickly too. Keep your heartaches in a shoebox, pierce air holes to make sure they can still breathe. Though they don't need air anymore, they're dead. But you pierce them because that's just the kind of person you are. When you leave your house, you leave breathing rooms. What you're burying, not a body. What it tells, you're not guilty. Gosh, that's the first time I've ever read Burial in a while. A lot of the poems from the ashes are about forgiveness in terms of forgiving the guilt that can come with grief. There's a lot of remorse and regret that can come with grief sometimes, and it's just about kind of putting all of that guilt away and knowing that a part of grief is knowing that something is unfinished. Like, I read a post somewhere, and this could have been Tumblr, actually. It was an excerpt from something, I don't remember, but Grief is essentially all of the love that you had that you couldn't give. This is essentially what it is. It's about forgiving yourself for not being able to have given all of that kind of care and affection and um, appreciation and knowing that that's actually a part of loss. It's not something that you're meant to overcome because at the end of the day, you're always going to have more to give. Actually, you're always going to have more that you can show and more that you can do and yeah i think this is a pretty good poem just to end on it's not the last poem of the entire collection but we've reached our end of this poetry evening thank you so much for sticking around and stopping by and wanting to hear just some of the ideas that float around these poems but also especially these poems themselves um, I feel like they do speak for themselves and 
no matter how you interpret them, it's up to you. This little poetry anthology is definitely not the most joyful poetry anthology, but I think it was so cathartic to write and it always cycles back. Art is an artifact of what I could have made at the time. Um, that's just something I always remember and try to remind myself. Now it's time to leave the world of Burns, so I hope you make it home safe, um, and I hope you have the rest of your day to spend as you wish. Wholeheartedly, Clara. getting used to seeing my own name. It's really weird. <laughs>